When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Cool. Hi guys, welcome back to the show. Very excited to have our guest here today, the one and only James Altucher. Well, thanks for having me on the growth list. I'm really excited. Yeah, yeah. And also, thanks for having me in your uh, stand-up studio or stand-up, stand-up comedy club. Yeah, yeah. Call, so it's a stand-up it. comedy club downstairs, and we have podcast yeah. studios up here and that agency down the hall. Amazing. And do you own the uh, stand-up comedy club here? Yeah. Yeah, I have, a, I have a co-owner, but yes. Right. And you, from what I know, at least, you recently made this public transition into also doing stand-up comedy. Yeah, inside amongst the millions of things that you've done. Yeah, not quite a transition, just something new that I'm that or not new. It's been four years now, but uh, it's just that I've been I've been doing this along with the other things. I I, I probably have to trim down some of the other stuff or or this. Gotcha. So you've done you've done this, I guess, on your own, just silently, I guess, and now you're doing it more on a uh, frequent basis. Is that yeah, what I mean, uh, I've always kind of had. I don't want to say a stand-up component to my talks because it's very different, but yeah. I've always used elements of uh, stand-up comedy in my public speaking. And then um, in about four years ago, I had an opportunity to go up at, a, at, at on stage to do stand-up comedy. I did it. I enjoyed it. And I started doing it more and more. And, and like three or four years ago, started doing it about between on average, three to five times a week, you know, uh, yeah. anywhere between one and 10 times a week. But I'd say the average is about four. What was that like in your first time? Uh, it was it was so terrifying. Yeah. I had to do six minutes and it was fr- in front of a friendly audience. Like it was set up that way. It was like a challenge to myself. And it, I invited essentially friends and family and they all came and it was an, uh, the Bell House in Brooklyn, which seats about 300 people. It was full, full house. And so it was a friendly audience and a stand-up comedian introduced me and also Stephen Dubner, who we both challenged each other. He, he's the co-author on Freakonomics. We challenged each other to do some stand-up. And I was so terrified. I can't even describe. I thought all day long, I thought I was going to throw up. We had a month to prepare. I just was obsessively thinking like, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? Why did I agree to this? Why, do, why am I always agreeing to things that I'm going to hate on the day of? And then that whole day, I just didn't want to go finally get there. And I'm just trying to remember the six minutes and I'm trying to just figure out, is it funny? I'm calling up all my friends. Is this funny? Is this funny? And then I did it and it was really great. And, and the, my, the first thought, the second I was finished was, boy, I want to, just go up at a different comedy club and do the exact same six minutes again. Oh wow! And uh, I never did those exact same six minutes again. But uh, I had such a fun time that I decided, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna do it again. It'll be easy. And then I went up again at a different club, and 
uh, I was terrified, terrified, terrified all day long. And I've, I'm usually, I'm not quite as terrified, but I, I do get scared before each time. And it's, yeah. it's an interesting challenge because there are, so, so, you know, you've had Tucker Max on your podcast. So last time I had, Tucker's a very funny guy, yeah. very funny books. And uh, last time I was in Austin, we were having lunch and he's like, James, why are you doing this? We all know you're funny. Your, your, your books are hilarious. Your talks are hilarious. Why, why do you feel the need to do this? And I, it's not. Humor is one part of comedy. It's an important part, but there's also kind of that psychological challenge. There's mm -hmm. also, it's a much different kind of stage presence that you have to have on stage than giving a talk. It's much, there's also uh, crowd work. There's also figuring out uh, your likability with an audience of strangers. Yeah. Like when you give a talk, they're coming to see you talk. And when you're at a, when you're one person on a, an eight or eight person lineup, uh, at a stand-up comedy club, they they don't know who you are, and half the club might be tourists, uh, half the club might be New York, you know, total strangers, mm. and so and they're sitting there with their arms folded, and it's like they're challenging you, like, go ahead, make me laugh, yeah. and you know, it's you know, if you go if you go for instance to a movie, you want to see a movie. If you go to a comedy club, uh, sometimes there's this feeling like, oh, they're not going to make me laugh, right. <laughs> um, um, they can't do it. And you ha you kind of have to like break through that wall because adults really aren't used to laughing. We don't laugh that much during the day. Yeah. And uh, as opposed to when we were kids. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting challenge and the challenge never ends as opposed to writing humorously or speaking humorously in talks or being funny with your friends that you can get good at fairly quickly and early on. Stand-up comedy is like an extra set of challenges. Yeah, so I, I like skill acquisition. You know, kind of like what you do with you know your your into your your business is skill acquisition, language acquisition, and and there's all these subtleties, right? It's not just memorizing a list of vocabulary words. Yeah, you know, there's there's context, there's emotions, there's um, uh, there, there's writing and speaking and listening, and so there's lots of sub skills that are mutually exclusive to each other. Writing is different than speaking. Yeah, uh, memorization is different than uh, context and emotions. And, and, uh, if all you do is memorize words, you're never going to really learn a language. I've, I've tried that before. Actually, I tried to memorize a thousand, the thousand most commonly spoken Spanish words. Right. And it was useless. Like I really didn't know how to speak Spanish at all to anybody just memorizing a thousand words. Yeah. Back yeah. when I had a good memory. Gotcha. Gotcha. Because I know you do also, you were doing speaking quite heavily, and you still do a lot of speaking. Yeah. So did those skills transfer when you were doing stand-up comedy? Speaking did not transfer to stand-up comedy. Stand-up comedy transfers enormously to speaking. So I, was, I, I felt like I already was a, a sought-after speaker. Like I was speaking at a lot of conferences. I would get, you know, I didn't like doing paying gigs because I felt too obligated, but I would get paying gigs. And, um, and again, I was always... Uh, funny enough, they would ask me, and and interesting enough, uh, they would ask me to come back, and I I had uh, regular, you know, paid speaking gigs for like fifteen years, and uh, so but for some reason, and maybe I'm just looking at it wrong, the stand up skills did not transfer to stand up comedy, but stand up comedy has made me an enormously better public speaker like 10x interesting yeah because i always wonder right so we kind of we decide to choose the specific skills that we want to learn 
this also applies to language going back to what you were saying because certain skills that we learn can transfer towards learning other skills yes. and it makes other things easier for example for language when you learn a romance language like spanish learning learning french italian portuguese these become a lot easier and as you mentioned with stand up it can transfer to a lot of different areas in in your life as well so i'm wondering if there's other things that people in the audience could learn that can help them with other things so it's interesting that speaking doesn't transfer to stand up it could transfer to other things as well but stand up certainly transfers well over you said 10x to yeah public tra- speaking transfer stand up transfers to public speaking it yeah. transfers also to going on television so mm. being on like a being a let's say um on a panel in a news show uh it's it's almost as if the anchors and the other panel members are your audience not that you're going to be funny like it's not about telling jokes but you suddenly have a different kind of stage presence mm. on that small stage and uh in public speaking and this this also applies to negotiation it applies to sales it applies to like i mentioned being on on television in stand up comedy and this is not to put stand up comedy too much on a pedestal there's certainly certainly can be considered a waste of time also but you learn to read the audience really well like let's say you have 30 people on a slow night in the club and let's say you're the MC, so you have to keep the the, the audience warm for all the comedians who are coming up you learn to read you can see every or this is a skill you learn over time you see every person in the audience and what's going on in their heads who's having fun who's not who might have an interesting story in their background, who's doing something funny, like who's looking at their phone under the table. And you, you're able to interact with each person either directly or indirectly in a way that I was able to transfer to public speaking that I didn't realize existed before. It was right. like a skill I didn't realize even was necessary for, for to be a good public speaker. Huh. So, it, but it reminds, but you're right about language and I'm very interested in this topic because, you know, we we're, We've kind of maybe been force taught in the past decade about the 10,000 hour rule where you need 10,000 hours to become great at a skill. And so I started thinking initially, what skills are transferable to other skills? Like you mentioned, if you learn Spanish and you put in 10,000 hours learning Spanish, maybe 6,000 of those hours can be transferred to learning French. So you already have a 6,000 hour head start. Maybe that's true. I kind of think it's sort of true, but I also have my doubts now about the 10,000 hour rule. But it's similar like uh, chess. If you're a master of chess, you you probably can transfer a lot of hours over to poker or backgammon, Uh, you know, other games. If you're good at business, there's a reasonable chance you could transfer it over to uh, investing. Or if you're good at one business, you could transfer it over to the next business, even if it's in a different industry. There's a lot of overlap. If you're good at, um, investing, you might be good at entrepreneurship. You know, maybe that that's a little less clear. Yeah. Uh, some things where people think transfer easily, like if you're, if you have a PhD in business, not zero of that transfers to actually running a business. Right. right. So, so it's, it's tricky using that, but I'm always thinking what things transfer. Then there's the, uh, the idea of, um, you know, what Scott Adams, I think, calls the talent stack, where if you're good at many things, you're like the best in the world at the intersection. Yep. So I try to be pretty good at uh, all the things that I'm passionately interested in. Mm. And then I know 
um, the best in the world at this intersection, which I also should be passionate about since I'm passionate about all the things that create that intersection. Sure. What would you say the three to four intersections for you are, at least right now, that you're cultivating? Well, uh, writing. I've always, I've, I've written every single day since 1990. So that's probably the one area where I've put in the 10,000 hours. And uh, certainly podcasting is, is something I'm interested in and, and ex exploring how to take the next evolution in that for myself. Stand-up comedy, obviously. Games. Um, I, um, since I was a kid, I've been a chess master, a, the, equivalent, the equivalent of a Go master. I've played wow. poker semi-professionally at times, uh, other games. Uh, and of course, business and investing. I've, I've been doing you know, nonstop since 1994. Wow. I mean, speaking of chess, I feel like this, it just in terms of being able to really help you rise towards the stand-up comedy scene, to own your own stand-up comedy club is like a really big chess move because you're able to control the distribution of the people that come in. You're immediately connected to the people that are, sure. that are in the scene. Obviously, you still have to be amazing, uh, to be a stand-up comedian, but yeah, it's like, like like if I constantly bombed on. So when you when you go up, so because I own a comedy club, yeah. I can relatively easily put myself in a position that only super high professionals get. Which, for instance, performing on the eight p.m. show on a Saturday night. Right. But if I was the one person who consistently bombed, <laughs> meaning right. I nobody laughed and maybe I got heckled on the eight p.m. show on a Saturday night. A, I wouldn't want to put myself there because I own the club, so I have incentive to make the show good. I don't want the club to have bad reviews. B, uh, it wouldn't be fun for me. It would be awful. But mm. but getting that laughter on a Saturday night, that's a really great feeling. It's it's an enormous dopamine shot. So that's one of the reasons I keep doing it. And the other thing is, is that you quickly, it's really true that saying you're the average of the five people you surround yourself with. So there's a big difference between a pro lineup and being part of that and holding yourself to that standard than let's say, you know, doing 4 PM on a Sunday at an open mic that only three other people are going to. Not that those people are bad. They're just beginning, but, and they're, and they're trying really hard and they're working really hard, but holding myself to the standard, like I have to be, nobody in the crowd knows who's a professional and who isn't. Mm. So I have to not stand out in a weird way. I have to be one of, the lineup so people can't tell who was the non-professional and that was hard work but it also allowed me i'm very much about skipping figuring out how strategically to skip the line in skill acquisition so mm -hmm. so that was one way to skip the line in comedy another way is uh i have a podcast so i've had 20 or so of the best comedians in the world on my podcast mm -hmm. i don't have them on so everybody could learn from these comedians. I have them on so I could learn. <laughs> I get them a captive audience. I get them to sit right there and I yeah. ask them, I, I think about what happened to me the night before. And I said, so if this situation happened to you, what would you do? And for my audience, of course. Yeah. Yes, for the audience, the audience really wants to know. Yeah. So, so uh, and I get these, and, and it really does boil down to skill acquisition though, because I'm asking them questions that only a highly skilled professional of any field would be able to answer. Sure. And so I learn, and I do try to translate it for the, for the audience um, into any skill uh, like negotiation or sales or just living life. Well, but uh, it's been a very great way for me to just, 
And then also owning a club has, like you said, put me into the subculture of, you know, high level comedy in, in New York City. The New York, New York City's got a great subculture of comedy. And I feel a part of that now after several years owning this club. And, uh, you know, some people are going to say, oh, well, he just got on the stage because if particularly comedians will say he just got on the stage because he was a club. But now I think at this point and maybe for the past year or so, I've I've been I've earned it. Like I yeah. would definitely not put myself up there if if I didn't earn it at this point. For sure. Because also I would be ter- too terrified. It, I'm 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 old now. I don't need the stress. <laughs> of course, of course. And as you mentioned, you do have an incentive to make sure people are entertained as much as possible, and you have a track record at this point now, right? Right. I mean, when I first was doing it, I didn't understand how important, for instance, certain shows were, like the Friday night show, the Saturday night show, even the Thursday night show, and and then and there's position. So I didn't understand what's the role of the MC, what's the role of the first person who's up before the crowd's fully warmed up. What's the role of the second to last person is usually called the check spot, meaning the waiters are handing out checks to the crowd. So it's harder to get the crowd's attention. Mm-hmm. So these are different skills for each spot you have. And there's diff- there's, it's much, it's easier to bomb if you're the first one up or if you're in the check spot. So you have to work that much harder. Yeah. And so I, another way I skip the line um, is I ask for the check spot because no one else wants it. So I know it's easier for me to get. When I say I ask, I don't really get involved in the booking process. We have a booker and I try not to, you know, it's like <laughs> church and state. I try yeah. not to um, ha- have extra favors, uh, but I'll ask for the spots that nobody else wants. If you mm. always go to the place least crowded, that's the, that's skipping the line to success in 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 the area you want. Interesting. So, interesting. so you know, and I, I noticed this when I was younger and I was trying to get better at chess I would ask my, I would wonder why is so-and-so, why did he move up so fast in chess? And I would realize, well, his next door neighbor was the number two player in the world. So he would just play in Bulgaria, that person all day long. Mm. And he became okay in the top 100 in the world. Right now, maybe he was talented. Maybe he was skilled, but I think it also helped that just every day as a kid, he was playing the number, the person who was destined to be the number two player in the world. For sure, for sure. And particularly when it comes to stand-up comedy, I know telling your story in an authentic, but also putting that spin touch of comedy in every, you know, every punchline that you do is super, super important. And I know that, um, at least from the interviews that I've seen, there hasn't been a lot of focus on your childhood in terms of you know, before high school or even during high school. So I want to I wanna dig deeper into what that was like and what your upbringing was like when you were little when you were in either elementary or high school, because you, you've got a fascinating story of all the ups and downs that someone can only fathom within four lifetimes. So yeah. I'd love to dig deeper into what your childhood was like when your upbringing was like. It would be four very sad lifetimes if someone had to live those lifetimes <laughs> over and over again. Um, yeah, I think I, I kind of had an, an average um, upbringing. My, my dad worked in New York City. Uh, he was a computer a computer guy and my mom also uh was was a computer person maybe one of the earliest women to be involved in software engineering like she and my dad met at a company they worked for in 1961 which wow. was the earliest company that was um platform they wrote platform independent software so previously if you had a software company you would write software for the IBM 360 mainframe or or the univac or whatever uh they this company that uh my parents worked for 
was the first one that wrote for all the different mainframe companies. There were only mainframe companies in the late 50s, early 60s. And so then she went to get a master's degree in computer science and she was uh, very smart. She's published tons of, of papers about programming languages and object-oriented programming. And they always pressured me, do computer science, you'll be good at it. We're both good at it. And I never wanted to. I wanted to be a major in psychology. And, uh, but then, you know, it pulled me in, as they say, and uh, I ended up majoring in computer science gotcha. and, and becoming, and for, for many years, I was a, a software guy and computer scientist. Why did you want to study uh, psychology so much? Uh, I just loved uh, talk, the idea of talking to people all day about their problems. <laughs> Were you pretty social and like in high school? Or no, no, I'm up? the biggest introvert possible. I cannot... I cannot interact. Like even my friends know that the only way to really interact with me is if they write a book and come on my podcast. <laughs> so, so I, that's how I interact socially with most of my friends is, Hey, yeah, come on I'm my similar. podcast and we'll hang out for an hour. For sure. For so sure. otherwise I just, I stay at home as much as possible, but, and I think that's hurt me a little bit in, in business, but, and then, and even as a kid growing up, I had maybe, you know, one friend and, of course, I was, you know, in the chess club, so it's not like I was the most popular kid in school. And, you know, uh, I'm trying to think more. So nothing. That's the thing is, you know, it's interesting to know that, you know, even though we have this gross income inequality in the U.S. right now, like the top 1% getting richer, the bottom 50% actually for the first time, you know, not, you know, that, 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 you know, the increase in wealth is now not as it's increasing on both sides, the bottom 50% and the top 1%. But now the top 1% is generating more wealth per year than the bottom 50%. Right. So the income inequality is expanding at a, suddenly started expanding at a much faster rate. But the average American, I would consider my childhood very average. The average American doesn't make that much money, doesn't have uh, a, has some college education, but not a college degree. And, you know, and we lived in the suburbs, which were very boring. So all I really had was, was I either would pursue my interests or I don't know, since I was introverted, I just kind of stayed at home and watched TV. So I would do both. I would watch TV and I'd, I would, I was always, if you name a year, if you say a number, I could tell you what I was obsessively interested in that year to the point where I had no friends because that's the only thing I wanted to talk about. What were some of them? Uh, like, okay. When I was six years old, I was obsessed with Greek, Norse, and Egyptian mythology. So I would, uh, basically beg my parents not to take me to school some mornings and just drop me off at the library. And I had, you know, they would give me the library and gave me permission to go into the adult section of the bookstore. And I would just read all these books about mythology and none of my friends at the age of six wanted to talk about the difference between Zeus and Odin, for instance. I don't think I even knew how to read at six. <laughs> that's crazy. So I was, I was, that's all I was interested in. And then, I don't know, another thing, when I was in, when I was 10, uh, I was obsessively interested in politics. So I would read, I read books. I didn't know anything about issues because no little kid knows about, you know, what issues are important, like whether, you know, 
social welfare programs are good or bad. Like I had no opinion on that, but I was obsessed with the game of politics. So I read about every election. I just read tons of biographies and uh, I I was really obsessed with elections. Like how did, how did so-and-so win this election? And I could, I, it's funny how I don't remember anything I learned in fourth grade when I was 10, but I can tell you all these details about every election. You only really remember this is important to know. You only, and I'm sure you could testify to this too. You only really remember the things you're passionate about. Yeah. I don't, I, I remember uh, everything about mythology from when I was in first grade, but I can't write in cursive anymore. Right. <laughs> so I don't know what phonics is. So, uh, uh, and I don't, I don't know anything else I learned in, in first grade. I mean, I'm sure I learned how to, the basics of reading and writing, but I already knew that. Huh. Yeah. So do you think this fascination of like just going deep into knowledge and reading books and I guess part of it is being introverted actually allowed you to explore this fascination about psychology and how people were thinking? Because in some ways, when you were young, you're saying that you were a little bit isolated because you were so focused on learning these or being obsessed with this in the library, let's say, and you were quite introverted. Yeah. So, so like, um, when, when I was 11, the year after I was 10, I was very, my parents had all these pop psychology books, you know, like, Uh I don't know what the pop psychology books of that day were like books, like don't say yes when you want to say no. So all these kind of ways of explaining, you know, kind of trends in psychology, whether it was Adlerian psychology or cognitive behavioral therapy or whatever, there was these kind of pop books in the seventies that would translate these ideas to the masses. And I would just read all of them. And I I became obsessively interested in figuring out the people around me, maybe because I was so introverted, I wanted to figure out more how to understand people so I could talk to them. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, to some extent it's, it, it was a way, it was an excuse to get myself out of introversion by having an excuse to ask people questions or having a reason to call people up and talk to them. So when I was interested in politics, for instance, I would call people who were running for office and say, I'm working for a local newspaper. Can I interview you? So it was literally, I was literally doing a podcast because then I'd record the interviews. <laughs> Back in the day, so yeah. yeah, so I would call and I had no shame. Like I would call, Bill Bradley was a senator from New Jersey at the time. I would call him. I would call I remember Jim Wright was later became the speaker of the house. He was the minority leader at the time. I called him. I called the white house obsessively. They probably wow. had me on 10 different lists. Uh, <laughs> but ultimately I interviewed like the, the chief usher of the white house. And then he invited me to, to hang out there for my birthday. And he gave you my dad a tour of the, the white house. So I had lots of interesting experiences and I used my interests as an excuse to talk to people who I other again, just like I use my interest now to talk to people yeah. who I otherwise would not be able to speak to or interview. I did the same thing back then every for every single interest. Not it never it never stopped. Wow. That's so, crazy. When I was uh seventeen going on eighteen, so the end of my being seventeen, and then this lasted all through eighteen, I was obsessed I I began to be interested in chess. I wasn't really good at, I never really had played chess beforehand. And then I got obsessed. So, but at that, this point at 17, I knew how to take advantage of an obsession and make it work for me. So right away I started taking lessons from 
literally a guy who was at one point one of the top two or three players in the world. And so I had I was able to interact with such a, a genius. And so before I even had a chance to develop bad habits, he taught me very good habits. Mm. And I read um, uh, non nonstop books. Now there's computers to help people out. So it's a whole different level of training. But I read nonstop books. I would take lessons two or three times a week from from, you know, these these grandmaster players. And by the time I was 18, I was uh, uh, New Jersey's junior chess champion. I was the highest ranking kid for my age group in New Jersey and even uh, the country. So New Jersey, wow. I was one, number one in the country. I was in whatever the top 10 for people, I don't know, 15 to 18 years old, something like that. Yeah, it's crazy because I think a and lot then I stopped completely. Did you stop playing chess, you mean? Yeah, I mean, uh, and then I, 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 I didn't restart for about seven years, and I played for about six months then, and then I stopped for good. Why did you want to stop? Uh, I just got interested in other things. Okay, yeah, because you got so many other yeah. curiosities, right? Yeah, I mean, I think feel like you're a perfect example of someone that has, because um, I think a lot of the, the the mainstream like society, I think, would normally say that introversion, people that are introverted may have like a disadvantage in terms of networking or meeting people. But I should think the opposite, especially in this day and age. And you're a perfect example of someone that was introverted, but you managed to get in touch with people that even the most extroverted person would never even fathom to to do, especially today where instead of picking up a phone and calling people, it's just Instagram DM. Uh, So, I mean, what are your tips for people that may think being an introvert is a disadvantage and what are your tips for, uh, I guess, overcoming some of those potential downsides or at least perceived downsides right. for those people? Because, because, I mean, there's no real good or bad. Like, like extroversion is a great thing, too, to be able to go to a party and, um, and kind of seamlessly and easily mingle into the party and and enjoy and be energized by it it's very hard for me to do that like i i try to do that and you know i i kind of fake fake it till i make it a little bit that's one of those situations where i think that phrase applies yeah but i think in general my strategy has been uh and this is no one's really asked me about introversion before but but i think so i have to think about a little bit but my my uh, strategy in general is to kind of create a situation where I have permission or I give myself permission to call or reach out to the people I want to reach out to. So for instance, um, there's two times when, so I was interested in investing. I have an investing background that stretches. I've been managing money for 20 years now. So I have a, a deep investing background but at first I wasn't so good at it and like, like with any skill and, but I wanted to get good at it. So I, so I said, okay, let's just start doing the usual thing. So I started reading tons of books. So as opposed to like someone who works for a particular hedge fund and learns investing that way, they only learn one skill. Like they learn whatever the investment, whatever the premise is for that mutual fund or hedge fund or, or bank, that's what they're, that's the skill they will learn, whether it's value investing or growth investing or arbitrage. So, but I didn't have that advantage. I was coming at it from, uh, my, you know, my last company before I was interested in investing was creating websites for entertainment companies. So I knew nothing. I didn't have any background. Like I didn't have an MBA. I didn't work at a bank. I didn't work at a fund. So 
I read every book I could find about every investing strategy. So I really wanted to to know everything. And I read all the biographies of everybody ranging from Warren Buffett to Bernard Baruch to um, what caused the South Sea bus, bu- bubble to more, you know, you know, activist investors like Carl Icahn or George Soros. And then I wanted an excuse to talk to these people. Mm. So I said, I wrote emails to all of them. Can you talk to me? Of course, nobody even, it's not like anybody said no, nobody even responded. It's not like, it's not like Warren Buffett, as soon as he got my email, said, you know, oh my gosh, James Altucher just wrote me. Hold everything. He's going to buy me a cup of coffee if he could just pick my brain for 15 minutes. All he needs is 15 minutes of my time. He never even responded. So, so again, I set myself up in a situation where, people were more likely to respond. So what I did was I researched everyone's business, particular business, and I started writing down, here's my waiter's pad. I started writing down idea. I write down 10 ideas a day in this waiter's pad to practice that creativity muscle. And I started writing down 10 ideas for each person's business. And then I had a better email to write to them, which is, I don't want anything from you. I'm an admirer. I admire your business. Here's 10 ideas I think can work for you. You know, that would be roughly the, the, how the, those letters were structured. And then three out of the 20 responded and I got to know people and I got opportunities and started a real career, both as a writer of investing and as an investment manager. Fast forward a few years, I created another situation for myself. I decided, you know what? I'll raise money to be a fund of funds. So I'll take money from wealthy people and invested in a diverse portfolio of really good hedge funds. Mm. And so that gave me an opportunity to meet with hundreds and hundreds of hedge fund managers and interview them. What are you doing? And and I also got to do due diligence on them so I could see who was good, who was bad. What are the qualities of a good investor? What are the yeah. qualities of a bad investor? By the way, what are the qualities of a scam? Because I would say a good third of them were completely fraudulent, like Minnie Madoff. I even met Bernie Madoff, by the way. Oh, wow. And, um, I'm, uh, you know, I had so many interesting experiences. Like in 2005, I think it was, I met John Paulson, who was really the biggest guy uh, shorting against the housing bubble. Um, he's actually in the book, The Big Short, but he was never mentioned in the movie, The Big Short, because he was mm-hmm. literally, the, he, was, he, was, he was billions and billions of dollars. He was shorting. I mean, he previously had only like a hundred or two hundred million dollar hedge fund, yeah. which I say only because that's small in hedge fund terms. But he ended up raising money and investing billions of dollars against the he- the housing bubble, and he was outlining everything for me about all the housing statistics. And I remember leaving the meeting thinking, "Man, this is two thousand five. I was like, man, this the country is just screwed. Like how." Because his main, I said, what, what's your main worry with all this? His, and he said his main worry would be that the, the entire financial system would collapse so fast, he wouldn't be able to get his money out of the banks in time. This is three years before, too. Yeah, three years wow. before. And so that was the problem. So I called up. So, so there were two problems. This is just a segue. But uh, he said, until the crisis happens, I'm going to lose a percent a month because housing was still going up. Right. And he, and 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 I couldn't as a as a investing in a diverse group of funds. I don't know. I was maybe not so smart about it. I didn't want to invest in an 
in a strategy that was losing a percent a month. Mm. But I was still considering it. So I called up a bunch of other fund of funds managers. So this gave me an excuse to call other and, and network with other fund uh, fund managers yeah. and say, hey, what do you think of this guy and his strategy? And they were like, oh, no, forget it. That's a that's a crowded strategy. It'll never work. A hundred percent of those people, I call about 10 people, hundred percent of those 10 people, all 10 of those people all claim now that they had invested in that, in John Paulson's strategy. But at the time they said, no, 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 it's an awful strategy. So one way or the other, they were lying. And, uh, that, that's how fraudulent, like the whole investing business is. But, you know, but that gave me, whenever I went to a party with these people, I was a wreck. I couldn't talk to anybody. I couldn't. But I could do this one-on-one, like, hey, let's mean for lunch. I heard about these interesting strategies. Let's compare notes. So I had a situation to meet lots of the, the best professional investors in the world. Right. So so I, that's why I hate most investing books. They're just like people who write investing books. I've I've been in the business. I've been neck deep in the business. I mean, yeah. from from Bernie Madoff's office to John Paulson's office to, you know, Warren Buffett's meetings to you know, and I wrote a book about Warren Buffett, trade like Warren Buffett. So I got to meet a lot of other people who have, you know, done almost a religious study of Warren Buffett's career. And so, so back to your, this is a long way of answering your original (laughs) question. So I apologize how long it was, but I always put myself into situations where, uh, it, it was really easy to interact with people I would learn from people I admired people I would benefit from. Even when I was studying chess, I didn't just play with my friends in the local chess club because that would have been worthless. Mm -hmm. I wanted to not be the best in my high school. I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to interact with the best in the world. Sure. Now, there's a cost to that, but it's never as much as people think. So, uh, you know, this guy, Sammy Ryshevsky, at the time, when he was a little boy, you could see pictures of him. He's at age six playing a hundred people simultaneously. Like he was a super prodigy in the forties. He was one of the best players in the world. And then in the eighties, he was an old man, but still a genius chess player. Yeah. And I would pay him $70 an hour. And I had a paper route where I was making like a hundred bucks a week. So, mm. uh, uh, it's no problem. And then, you know, and I had other little jobs that I would do and, and make enough money to, to pay him. And even owning a comedy club, instead of buying a car, I was able to make my first investment in this comedy club. So mm. it's some people will buy two cars, they'll buy a nice house, they'll buy maybe a boat for the summers or or whatever. You know, I'm talking about, you know, older middle class people. So instead of buying two cars, they're able to buy part of a comedy club. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I mean, circling back, I feel like, uh, again, like this whole negative connotation with being an introvert, but I feel like to, in this day and age, you know, in the world of social media where you can tap one button and just get in touch with anyone in the world, I think a lot of people are facing loneliness in many ways, right? Especially the ex- extroverts that are used to having someone there always, but where people are living all around the world and it's, there is this less need to always be in person. People are working remotely now. You can just talk to people yeah. by messaging them. People don't even call each other anymore. Um, but on the, like, on the one hand, though, that's great. Like, yeah. when when... when um, you know, instant messaging was big in the eighties, mm. right before the web. Like that's how I would keep in touch with my friends. Cause I was a computer science major and, yeah. and we all used the internet back then. Uh, uh, but 
I feel like instant messaging really took off in the early OOs with AOL Instant Messenger and ICQ. And suddenly I was in this investing subculture because I started writing for the Financial Times and the Street.com and Yahoo Finance. And so I would just, now I had a structure again to reach out to people. Mm. So I would reach out to fellow writers like, hey, just wanted to introduce myself. I also write for the Financial Times. I really love this article, this article, this article. I'd always try to provide value. And then I built friendships that way. And some of those friendships still exist. Like I, I've flown and visited people in person that I met that oh, way. Cool. So I always try to make it substantial, the, the relationship, if I can. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, and again, a podcast is great because it's, it's, a, a, you know, it's a situation where you can potentially reach out to an infinite number of people like, hey, I would love to have you on my podcast. And people, you know, hopefully respond yes, and I get to know them. And some of those relationships become friendships outside of the, the podcast. But I do worry about the loneliness of, you know, getting older, like, and I always question, like, how many close friends should somebody have? And fortunately, I have a great wife who's sitting right there. And I have five children who, I don't know, maybe they'll all eventually stop speaking to me, but hopefully <laughs> not. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, yeah, knock on wood. And, uh, and I try to keep a couple of good friendships, but it's really hard for me. It's really hard for me to, to, to do that. Are you at this point where, well, I guess maybe you've always been where just the the quality of the friendships that you have in your inner circle is something that you prioritize time for? Because you meet so many people, especially when you're speaking, doing stand-up comedy and doing the podcast. So even for me, I, I'm not interviewing nearly as many people as you, but it's just unfathomable to be able to build this relationship and, and keep in touch with people. So yeah, no, I think I have a that? problem with that. I don't, I don't, it's hard to prioritize it because... During the day, I'm writing, which is a solitary activity. I don't allow any interruptions then or, or very few. And then in the afternoons, I'm usually doing stuff that's business-related or podcast-related. Now, that's with my friends. Like, Jay's my friend. Steve, who's the podcast producer. I always want to work with my friends. So yeah. that's one way I, I create a situation where I could speak to my friends is that mm. I work with them. So even in business, I'm involved in like 20 or so deals and on any given week, I might talk to two or three CEOs of the companies I'm invested in, and that's they're my friends. Like those are are my friends. But but actual friends outside of business slash writing slash comedy, if if those could be called friendships, uh, I have very very. I don't think I have anybody. Yeah, me neither. Yeah, it, there has to be some synergy, right? So that when you're doing one thing, it's it's you feel at least I don't know if productive is like the word, but you feel there is something in common for sure. But do you get worried like when your business life slows down, you won't have friends? Sometimes. I think there's like it's like in the back of your head sometimes because it depends when you've met the person, right? Because when you've met the person, when you've already reached this level of success or when you're on your way, you never really know. It's kind of like the fear that most people have. Like, is this, is this girl marrying me for my money or is this guy marrying me for my looks? It's like the similar subconscious fear that we have, right? And I think that's part of the reason why I think you, people that you met in elementary or high school or college are tend to be the ones that you can maintain the deepest friendship because there is this level of trust when you had nothing. You know, you're a college broke, you're reading ramen, and you can still stick through all those years yeah, together. Yeah, I, I, I think, unfortunately for me, because I went through all of these obsessive periods that required 
literally 24 hours a day. Like my initial entrepreneurship, my initial years in investing, where I also was massively, massively depressed to the point where I, I couldn't, I could barely function. I think I basically, I have no friends from, well, I shouldn't say that. I have, I have the only friend I have from, and I wouldn't even call him a friend. I would call him a good acquaintance or decent acquaintance from elementary, junior high school, high school, college. The last person I spoke with, I spoke with him because he's a stand-up comedian. So I see, and he's well-known and I see him occasionally through comedy now, but I don't speak to anybody else from all the way through graduate school. Uh, I have no friends from college, no friends from high school, except this one acquaintance that I'll see once a year. Uh, graduate school, the only friend I have is the professor who threw me out. I threw, I got thrown out of graduate school. The press, professor who officially had to write the letter, like the dean who threw me out, he's one of my closest friends. <laughs> The so guy he, that threw you out. Yeah, so he's he's the only one where we've, you know, we we call each other, we email each other. Like he's a, he's like a legitimate friend where we're not doing business, and I'll call him just to see how things are going, or he'll call me, you know, and and he'll visit and and so on. Gotcha, gotcha. I mean, it's an interesting exercise, right? Is like who would who would still be with you if all the things that you did have, whether it's material or success possessions, just vanish one day? Well, I I think it was I didn't really understand this. But like when I first made money, when I first, when I sold my first company in 1998, yeah. very quickly, all these people wanted to be my <laughs> friend. And I'm like, oh, this is great. I'm popular now. And I didn't really make a distinction between who are good people, who the good people are and who the bad people are. And, you know, ultimately I ended up losing all my money. <laughs> and because I, I, I had a whole misguided view of what money was and how people view it. And, you know, it money by itself doesn't mean anything, but depending on your own internal history and views of money, it could either be a, a, a poison or something uh, very great for your life. And, you know, I think for, for many years, not just like one or two years, but for many years, it was like a poison in my life. And, you know, hopefully, hopefully I've, I've grown out of that period. I think I have, but you know, time will tell. Yeah. I mean, I know you've been through the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. So you must have had personally experienced these moments, as you mentioned, where you've had all these friends all of a sudden because you've had the success. And what happened when when things were at this at this lowest point? Did some of those people disappear? And I imagine- 100% of them. 100%? I, yeah, 100%. Zero, zero people stayed with me. But what about now when you've certainly risen back? Uh, 100% of the people. So, so then I started from scratch and yeah. I built up money again and businesses again. I got- Suddenly a whole new group of friends. Then I lost all my money. A hundred percent of those people are gone. This happened in a big way. I mean, I, I usually say it happened four or five times, but in a big way, maybe it happened three, maybe, uh, I don't know, three or four. Every single time I lost all my friends, except one. I have um, one business partner that I've been working with since 1999. And we talk almost every day. And of course we work together on lots of different things, but we're, we're you know, I will, I'll use the word best friends. Like we talk every day, we care about each other's lives and, uh, uh, and we're, we're very different, but he has really encouraged me during the downtimes and vice versa. And so it's, you know, again, I don't have that many friends. So that's, that's, you know, that's what happened each time I went broke. 
And how does that affect the way? And even you- family too. Family will drop you when you lose all your money. And I'm not saying this cynically, although it sounds like that. It's just something that happened to me. For sure. For sure. And how does that affect the way you view future relationships with someone that you may meet tomorrow even, uh, whether it's business, personal? Like how, how does that affect your viewpoint now, now that you've been through two times uh, these highs and highs? I don't know. I, I, I'd like to say I'm more careful. Uh, you know, I think the one insight I got was who, when I spend time with a person, do I feel worse about myself afterwards or do I feel, do I feel better about myself afterwards? And usually you want to stay close to the people who, where you feel better. They don't make you feel better about yourself. That's, you shouldn't need anyone to feel better about yourself. But if you just kind of naturally, after spending time with somebody, feel better about yourself, then that's probably someone you want to explore a, a, a friendship with because there's probably no other side agendas. Like you're not friends with the person because either side wants status or either side is interested in money or whatever. It's just, you know, so I'm friends with some other writers, for instance, where I really enjoy spending time with them talking about writing because writing is usually not an activity associated with, you know, a lot of money or, or even a lot of status. Sure. Sure. So for you, it's just mostly like a feeling at this point. You don't have this like checklist of like, yeah, gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you've done and you're doing so many different things now. And I imagine part of it is just curiosity driving this uh, push for learning new skills, constantly trying new things and challenging yourself. Um, how do you feel about this movement that we have in this generation of like the hyphen role where it's someone that can be working a full time job is also a DJ and is also a stand up comedian is also this. Do you think that, you know, if you were to advise someone today or or someone that is in their early 20s, do you think it is better to singly focus on one thing if you want to be, if your goal is to be the best at that thing? Or do you think there is an opportunity to do multiple things in your career? Because I think as Naval Ravikant said, because technology, there's so much leverage today. It's not about how much work you put in. It's about the strategy and how you allocate your time. Right. So, so Naval, who I, I like and admire very much, and I've met Naval many times. We've co-invested in some deals together. And one of my closest friends is his brother, Kamal Ravikant. Uh, I, think that's, I think that's very smart. Is that, and it's not just about technology. So he's right. Yes, if you want to build a good skill base in the, you know, for entrepreneurship in the modern tech economy, be good at many skills. So at many technology skills, like, I don't know, be good at programming or at least understand how to manage programmers, be good at cybersecurity, be good at AI, like at least under to the level where you understand at a fairly deep level. And so as a technology person myself, I always try to read the latest in, in the areas of technology that I'm interested in, particularly, you know, software, uh, where there's actually been very few developments in the past 30 years in terms of real science. There's not really that many scientific developments in, in software, but uh, I do think it's important. I don't, I don't believe in focus at all, like zero. Mm. So for instance, if all you did was focus on podcasting, uh, then who are you going to have on your podcast? You have, you you have nothing to say to anybody else. Yeah. So, cause you, let's say you want to have Richard Branson on your podcast. Well, hopefully at least a little bit you're interested in the music business and the airline business, or at least business in general. So if, if, if all you were interested in, or if all you were interested in was writing, 
you wouldn't have life experience to write about. Mm. You wouldn't have anything to write about. If all I was interested in was what's the mathematical structure of a joke, I wouldn't have anything, I wouldn't have a point of view to, to bring to the table to joke about where I have something interesting to say. And, and people could go home thinking that was both funny and, oh, he put a new thought in my head. Right. And, uh, and there are comics who are like that who are very good, but you know, there's, there's, there's a spectrum of kind of not interesting to interesting and not funny to funny. And you want to be somewhere at the high end of both of those spectrums. But so I, I think if I was to advise, well, look, I have five kids and, uh, they're all at the age where they're thinking about future careers. And I advise them, do not focus. The most important thing now is acquiring skills. And again, being the best at the intersection of those skills. Mm. And then they'll start to say to me skills that they think are important, but I could tell they're not passionate about. And so, and then drilling down, we'll see, oh, well, this person might not be passionate about what he or she thinks is interesting to learn. And so then you have to figure out, well, why do they want to learn this? Is there, is there another way to get at what they're really interested in? And they thought it was this way. So I think kids sometimes think, well, if I want to make a lot of money, I need to be in, have an MBA or major in business. It's actually the worst way to make a lot of money because business 101, don't get $300,000 in debt before you even start a business. And yet the typical MBA is somewhere between one hundred fifty dollars and $300,000 in debt by the time they graduate. And so they have to get a job, you know, that they didn't want, you know, to, to, to immediately start paying back down the debt. They're kind of a prisoner to that debt. So I think for me, it's been a real benefit that even though sometimes my interests are obsessive, so for a short period of time, I might get ultra focused. Uh, in general, I've had a wide variety of interests and, and now I have a, a somewhat of a variety that it's good to kind of connect the dots. Connecting the dots is really where you stand out because that because suddenly you're going to be in the space least crowded. Now, an excellent book about this um, that recently came out is Range by a guy, David Epstein. So David Epstein, he started out as a, he studied geology. He was a geologist, but he was interested in sports, but not the greatest expert in sports. But by doing scientific-based sports writing, he was the fastest rising um, writer at Sports Illustrated. And now he's wrote this book that was on the New York Times bestseller list. And, uh, you know, that's, that's how you create an interesting life is by not being focused. Mm. And also what's the, what's the point of focusing? Like even Warren Buffett, you can say, well, that he focused very much on investing. That's all he's done is investing. No, he, he has invested in his passions. So he invested in the Washington post and became the largest shareholder of the Washington post when they were going through a difficult time in 1974. Was that the first time he was ever interested in newspapers? No, he was a paper boy when he was a kid. In the 60s, he bought, um, I forgot the name of the paper, but it was like the Buffalo News, and he was so into it, he kind of drove out of business the only other competing paper in Buffalo. And so he had a lifelong interest in the newspaper industry, and yeah. he combined his interest in investing when he saw an amazing opportunity in, in the early 70s in the Washington Post, and that he made a huge amount of money you could argue maybe his first billion came from his investment in the washington post yeah i think i read somewhere where charlie munger was saying one of the worst things you can do is read an investing book and he actually reads a lot of philosophy book which is like 
you know, for most people who would think it's the complete opposite, but it's like a way to develop a different way of thinking to to differentiate himself from the others. Yeah, like the, the first person who ever invested money with me, so I became a professional money manager. You become a professional money manager when you're investing for someone else. Yeah. So when you're investing someone else's money. Uh, and the first person who ever invested in in me, he had one particular investing strategy. So he didn't really care about uh, my interest in investing. He only cared about his investment strategy. But he, he would ask me questions like, what, what are you reading right now? Because he wanted to gauge what else I was interested in. Mm. And fortunately at that time, I was reading a book about baseball, which I wasn't interested in at all, but I was interested in the perspective of the author. Stephen Jay Gould wrote some interesting, kind of an, interest, an alternative way of looking at the history of baseball. Again, something I'm not interested in at all, but I was interested in the way this book was written. But then this guy asked me, well, what do you think of Stephen Jay Gould? Because he didn't like Stephen Jay Gould as a writer. So because mm. of his diverse array of interests, he was able to really probe what kind of person I was. And I had to be up for the challenge. Interesting. Yeah. So I guess those things collapsed or uh, overlapped. Um, this is personal for, for selfish reasons, but this is aligned to the idea of diversification and doing multiple things, uh, transitioning from, from a skill set perspective or from a career perspective, but now into more business. Obviously, as an investor, it's, it's preferred that you diversify your portfolio and you try to allocate your risk. But for an entrepreneur, I think the common advice particularly with in the Silicon Valley world is like focus on one business, particularly the, in the age of leverage where it's super scalable. Um, what, what are your thoughts on, on it's, it's totally untrue. So mm, that is not, that is the worst advice you can give anybody, but then people will say, well, look at Uber. Uh, okay. That might be an exception where their main business of course is picking people up and driving them, but they try to diversify. Like they do Uber eats, they do, uh, logistics stuff, you know, delivery, uh, even Google is worried about being too focused. 99% of their profits come from advertising revenues, but they have their Google X, which is they're trying to find, you know, trillion dollar moonshots and they work really hard at it. Like they take it seriously that they really need to, not only are they putting advertisements on, you know, the, the results of their search engine, but they're also doing pretty advanced cancer research. They're also right. doing pretty advanced research into, you know, mobile phones and, and operating systems and, and other ways to deliver Wi-Fi to the masses and, uh, you know, maps and satellites. And, you know, Google's involved in an array of technologies. They're not, even though their revenues might seem focused, they're desperately trying to diversify away from that. Sure. Microsoft certainly has diversified. Like they, uh, you know, we're for, at first we're making all their money on MS-DOS, uh, which was an operating system for most PCs. Uh, and then they were making money on Microsoft Word, Microsoft Excel. But they realized that software as, as a service was becoming big. Internet was becoming big. Uh, enterprise software as a service was becoming big. So they have, I don't know if their enterprise division is bigger than their personal division, but it's certainly worth, Girl. you know, at least $100 billion of their market market cap. Yeah. And so I think, so then you could argue, well, focus in the beginning and then diversify later. That could be an argument if someone listens to what I just said. But in my first business, we didn't know, you don't really know when you start a business, what is going to be the catalyst that, you know, goes on fire. Mm. Like when we, my first business was making websites. It started in 1995 or, or at least 
my brother-in-law and I started doing consulting for corporations that wanted websites. Nobody even knew most people, I would say, I shouldn't say most, 50 to 60% of people, CEOs, didn't know what a website was, or they thought it was just for academics or it would be a fad. It would never get big. It certainly wouldn't be big in their customers. People certainly certainly wouldn't be paying, putting their credit cards into a their, uh, into a website and trusting that it wouldn't get stolen. Yeah. So, so it was very hard to convince people to build websites. So we were constantly looking for alternative things that we would explore. We explored doing a record label. We even contacted, we were contacting musicians every day. Like, hey, do you want to sign up for our record label? We, the most outlandish thing we did, we explored doing a tea company. So we started making different teas and then sampling them every morning. And this is while we were making websites for American Express and HBO and other companies. We'd also be drinking these iced teas that, that we were developing in our kitchens. So, you know, you're always thinking of what, what, and one of my most successful investments ever started off in 2007 as they made games for Facebook. So like Scrabble, you know, like a Scrabble like game for Facebook or a Boggle like game for Facebook. And they were competing against another small company. They were both small companies, another small company called Zynga at the time. And Zynga crushed it. My, the company I was invested in just, you know, was not good at this at all. Like their games failed. And, but the CEO was extremely smart and he wasn't, he was, he was focused on Facebook, but not on, on any one aspect. So he started, he created a, kind of an ad agency for large corporations so they can get their brands onto Facebook. The same way 10 years earlier, I had taken American Express and put them on the web. He was taking companies like Pepsi and putting them on Facebook which at the time we all viewed as like a, a, a like a, a micro internet. It was like an organized internet is the way I viewed it. Mm. And so that, that was my investing thesis when I invested in his company. And, you know, and then he pivoted from that to, he saw which particular things the companies were ordering, wanted the services of over and over again. So he created software for it. And then he became a software as a service company. And a big mistake, I think beginning entrepreneurs make is that, you know, if you're if you're a service company, you're valued very low because all the saying is all your assets walk out the door at night because it's your your assets are your employees. But if you're a software as a service business, you have a very high valuation because it's scalable. You make money while you sleep. Right. So even though he was providing the same service, when it became product based instead of service based, uh, his valuation went up a hundredfold, and he sold. Uh, in 2012, five years after I invested in the company, um, he sold it to Salesforce.com for about 800 million. Wow. So, but that was specifically by being not focused. Mm-hmm. So he survived the failure of two business models, and he survived the Great Recession of 2008, 2009 by specifically not being focused. Gotcha. Well, in that case, where it's it's fairly understood that a service business is perhaps not going to be valued as like a more attractive business model as software. What if someone is in like a semi-attractive business where it's not service, but it's a product and it's, it's, it's software base. But uh, at what point does someone decide to experiment uh, into, into new businesses, particularly in, in, I guess the argument is like, it's so cheap to start a business today. Um, But how do you balance that with staying focused on a semi-attractive business 
and putting your seeds into multiple other things? This is a great question because the question is not about focus or diversity, but about execution. So mm. there's this saying, um, uh, ideas are nothing, execution is everything. And to some extent, that's true. To some extent, it's false. It's a little too glib and broad to be one way or the other. But what people don't realize is that there is a spectrum of execution. And execution is a very difficult skill. Mm. And understanding what your options are when you execute is most people don't understand what they're, most people don't even know they have options. They think, oh, well, I want to make an app. I've got to hire software developers and make the app and then put it on the app store and then advertise. So that might be a very weak way to execute on an app idea. Yeah. And there might be 50 other things I, su I can suggest on, if you want to build an app company, there might be 50 things I would suggest before you actually even write one line of code to build the app. And I'm not talking about doing surveys. Do people need this or not? I'm talking about real execution and even making money before you write one line of code to build the app. So, so execution is, is an art form and a science at the same time. And most people don't realize, I think execution is one thing like, oh, I'm going to build an app company. So that means I have to build an app or I'm going to make a TV show. So I've got to write a script, you know, so people think of execution in these very simple ways. Yeah. And, and my point is to answer your question now is you asked how often should one think about kind of alternative business models or at least, um, new spokes in their business. And I would say every day, you should actually think of new business ideas for your business every single day. And not only that, you should execute on them. So, but, but I'm not saying spend a million dollars and develop a whole product and then see if it works. There's always very simple ways to test ideas. So in one business I started, it was kind of a social media site for, for finance. And, um, I experimented all the time, like, oh, let's put a Q and a section, which was really just a message board, but I called a Q and a, you can ask questions and people can answer. Yeah. And it was kind of like, you know, Quora. I wish I had actually taken it out of my business and built really Quora. Yeah. This would have been five years before Quora started. Yeah. And, uh, and I had, I was getting a million users a month. And what? then that was before I started. Once I added the Q and a section, the overnight, uh, and really again, the Q and a was just a message board, the first implementation of it. So I could just like off the shelf software and boom, I attached it to my site. Overnight, I got 30% more traffic, you know, page views. Wow. So, so some things are relatively easy to do and easy to experiment. I try to always do an experiment a day, you know, with whatever I'm doing to see, or at least, at least a significant experiment a week, maybe a small experiment a day to see mm. what things might catch fire. Right. So not even just within the business, but you're saying, because in an area where starting a business can be so cheap, you're saying starting a completely new business on the side is, uh, is, is certainly doable. You're saying while you're yeah, running another I'm business. saying, uh, new ideas for your current business. I'm saying start other businesses. Yeah. I'm saying, um, <laughs> diversify your interests and pursue and execute on other outside interests. I'm saying do experimental things that just seem weird and fun. Mm. Uh, I'll, I'll briefly tell you about one experiment I did. I took, um, this has nothing to do with any business I'm doing. I just, it was easy to do and cheap to do it, and it was almost no effort. I took the book Fifty Shades of Grey, which, of course, is the best-selling book of the past 15 years or 10 years. took the book Fifty Shades of Grey and 
I hired somebody off of Fiverr.com, like some grad student in India who knew who 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 knew of the book, knew English, everything. And I said, take this book, replace every single word with a synonym and send it back to me. So, and then I hired a designer to make a cover. I changed the title and I uploaded it and published it to Amazon under an assumed name. And, uh, you know, so things like, uh, uh, she was late for her tests, uh, was changed to, uh, uh, Julia had to rush to get to her exams. Right, and right, so, right. so the whole book just rewrote the exact book with, but it's a different book. What was the title? Uh, I'm not going to say. Okay. Oh, so it's, uh, yeah, <laughs> so okay, the okay. experiment is ongoing. Okay. okay. And, uh, uh, but <laughs> that's an experiment, <laughs> but, but maybe I spent a total of two hours of my time. I actually think that's a stretch, maybe more like one hour of my right. time on this. And maybe I spent a hundred dollars and I'm able to do an experiment that's quirky there's no way for the experiment to fail because it either works amazingly and sells a billion copies. And then I have to settle some royalty, you know, copyright infringement or it, uh, uh, you know, or it's something I can write about like, Oh, here's an example of an experiment or I could talk about it on a podcast. So no matter what the experiment is a success. Yeah, I mean, talk about, I mean, given how much time people waste on Netflix or YouTube, talk about a productive way to use your time, you know, just to test multiple things that are for, for fun as well. Yeah. You know, just to drive your own curiosity. Yeah, and that's a good point too. Time management, you could, you know, I, I love watching TV. I worked at a television company for many years. Uh, I, I, I've, I've pitched TV shows over the decades. So I've been intimate with the process. And so I do watch TV every day, but if you just watch an hour or less, that's, seven hours a week to do all of these amazing experiments. I'm, I constantly am juggling new fun experiments, some that are more public than others. Gotcha. Well, James, I, uh, I could literally talk to you for hours. I know, um, obviously we're, we're trying to wrap up things, but I, I want to know, you know, I think one of the things that I read about you is you don't like being called a self-help group. I don't think, I guess anyone does, but I wanted to know what are some of the tried and true or what are some of the advice that has stayed true throughout your life that um that could be useful for others that are listening so i'll tell i'll I'll, I'll tell you first i feel like i've been analyzing all your questions i'll tell you first why this is a good question i really dislike most self-help books because i think they pick one area of life and they they kind of aggregate all the scientific research and they put out the scientific research in the book and they interweave that scientific research with stories. Yeah. And then they have a best-selling self-help book. And I don't think any of it is based on their own real life exper- experience. It's one thing to say, okay, this type of thinking is better than this type of thinking. And we did these experiments at Harvard to prove it. And now here's a story of a child who did this and now look at them. Mm. Um, but I think it's really important to say what actually works for me. And that's the only thing I'm qualified to say. So you have to get an ability as a storyteller of your own life. So you have to have an ability as as a writer. And then you have to have an ability to analyze what has worked for me. And uh, as opposed to reading any self-help, because none, like I was reading, I don't don't wanna identify this. So I was, some self-help author recently reached out to me and the particular way this person reached out to me was exactly opposite to the advice in the self-help book he was asking me to help him 
promote. So <laughs> I, I can't say more specific or else yeah, it reveals yeah, the, yeah. the book and the person. But I just find so many of these people who are just self-help or or either they're that's their business is self-help or they're academically self-help. I just find so many so many of those books useless. They might be fun to read, but they're useless. Yeah. And so what's worked for me? Writing down 10 ideas a day, uh, on, specifically on a pad that looks like this. I'm pointing at a waiter's pad. Uh, that has worked to massively increase creativity over time. And then just all the basic stuff, like keep healthy because health is energy comes from health. So if you're sick in bed, you're gonna you're less able to be creative and to execute on ideas than if you're healthy. So that's obviously something that works. Um, having good relationships, having a good uh, spouse or romantic partner, these are things that, yeah, they're good for many reasons, but they also give rather than take energy. And energy, more than money, is the actual currency that we have each day to spend on whether it's entrepreneurship or building skills or investing or making friends or building connections uh, and on and on and on. You need energy. So, the, you know, another thing is, and I hate to use this word, but keeping spiritually healthy, which really doesn't mean praying to God. It means identifying things you have no control over and things you do have control over. Many people are obsessed with the things they don't have control over, and they then they have less energy for the things they do have control over. If I'm obsessed every day with talking about, oh my gosh, is Trump going to be impeached or not? Or why does this person not return my phone calls? I better find out. I have no control over any of these things. But what I do have control over is, okay, I'm going to write my 10 ideas a day, and I'm going to figure out some experiment to execute on, and I'm going to be, you know, hang out, spend time with my wife, and I'm going to call up a CEO of a company and that I'm invested in, see how he's doing. These are the things I have direct control over of. That actually is, in a weird way, spiritual health. Mm. So just those, just those basics. If you just do that, you're going to be, have a, I think you're going to have a better life uh, than the person who doesn't do those things. Yeah. I mean, in a world of infinite information, I feel like there's so much emphasis on trying to just like trying to get advice instead of trying to distill what type of advice and trying to find the pieces of nuggets, trying to filter the advice because it's infinitely, you can always find advice somewhere online with the top of a button, but no one really knows how to filter it out to use it in their own life. So I'm curious to know how you do that in your own, in your own life where you've got a, you know, a platitude of mentors that you bring on to the, the podcast and the people that you're learning from, how do you filter and try to take those golden pieces of nuggets and apply that to, to your own life? Uh, well, with every podcast, I try to figure out afterwards, what's the one thing I can do, take one from this thing. podcast to improve my life, or at least try a little bit to see if it improves my life. So I try to do that. And I try to do that with books that I read. I'll, if a book I'm reading is not good, I'll get rid of it after the first chapter or two. So the, for the books that I finish, I try to figure out what's the one, because you can't really remember most of a book. 98% of a book people forget. But I try to figure out what's the 1% I can take away. Uh, so I just read Talking With Strangers by uh, Malcolm Gladwell, which I think is an, a really excellent book. And again, I don't remember most of the stories he talks about, but I t my one takeaway is that most people assume when they're in a conversation with someone 
that that someone is telling them the truth. Mm. And so, and so what that may, means is we're, pro we're probably, most people are probably bad judges of character. So being aware for myself that I'm probably a bad judge of character allows me to, um, double check when I believe somebody is saying something true to me. Right. So that's one thing of value I get from talking with strangers, but it's an incredibly valuable thing. It confirms things I've thought of for a long time, but it so concisely summarizes his book and it applies to my life. So, so I always try to get like one takeaway when I like a book or a podcast guest or an interaction or an experience. What's my one learning experience? If I do poorly on a stand-up comedy set, what's the one takeaway I could learn from this? It's not like I'm going to say, oh, I suck or the audience was bad. Because mm. from Jocko Willink, who was a podcast guest of mine, I learned take extreme ownership. It's never the audience's fault. It's my fault. And I can't analyze every moment, I can say, well, maybe I should have used this strategy instead of this strategy. And I learned now in this particular environment, use this particular strategy, or at least try that next time. So, so that's kind of how I filter things. But most of the time you don't really get new information in your life. Like if you read the newspaper, there's no new information in the newspaper today. Like, oh, okay. The house has opened up another inquiry. They've been doing that every single day for the past 300 days. Yeah. So that's no new information. I'll f tell me when it's all over and I'll find out what happened and how it affects my life, if at all. Uh, and for mo most things are like that. The no in new information doesn't really help you make important decisions for your own personal life. Definitely. definitely. Like, like, like stuff about, um, I hate using politics, but like if there's some new research on the, 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 the ice sheet of Greenland, okay. I'm already doing what I think I can do anyway. It's not like I'm going to go to Greenland and, you know, do something different. So that information doesn't bother me. So maybe once a year I'll check to see what's going on there. Or, or if, if somebody I respect says something interesting about climate change, I'll, I'll look at it, but I just do what I already do. Most things don't change my view that much. Gotcha. Like I said, I could talk to you for hours, James. Uh, I want to leave the audience with one final question, which is we leave, uh, we ask the, we ask the, not the author, we ask the guest uh, to provide one final takeaway, actionable advice that uh, they, that the audience members can do to either go from zero to one in the business, in pursuing their dreams, whatever they might be doing, uh, or for one to two, one actionable thing that they can do right after they listen to this podcast um, that would be helpful towards taking them to the next step. Yeah, right. Get a waiter's pad. Just go to your local diner and ask them if you could please have a waiter's pad. And I like waiter's pads for a lot of reasons. I don't have to get into them, but I like that they're small. The format's small, so you can't write like a whole diatribe. You just have to write bullet points and write 10 ideas. Start writing 10 ideas a day. And they can't be easy ideas. They're like, oh, what are 10 words that start with A? <laughs> That, it, that are unusual. It can't be like that. It, uh, it has to be like uh, 10 businesses I could start, 10 books I could write, 10 articles I could write, um, 10 people I should call today and one idea for each of them. Uh, so it should be the case that when you're writing these 10 ideas down, that at idea number seven, your, your brain's like sweating. So when I hit idea number seven, this happens almost every day, I start counting. Did I hit 10 yet? Cause I don't know if I can come up with any more and you still have to come up with this final three. And I always forget, oh, am I on nine or am I on 10? And I have to count again. Mm. And so your brain should sweat a little with each, uh, idea list. 
And then, by the way, throw the list out afterwards. You, they're not supposed to be good ideas. They're just exercising. You know, you don't take video of every time you lift weights. It's yeah. just exercise. So, and then you go back the next day and you do it again. And then if something inspires you, one out of idea out of 3,650 in a year, then you might go and execute on it. And actually, as you exercise that creativity muscle, you'll have more and more ideas that you feel like testing a little bit with an experiment. So the t 10 ideas a day leads to more experiments in your life. Beautiful. And where should the audience find out more about you? Or do you have anything coming out coming up soon that you want to announce? Uh, yeah, you could subscribe to my podcast, The James Altucher Show, or follow me on Instagram at Altucher. I always try to put fun things on my Instagram, either useful or fun, or sometimes I share my idea lists of the day on Instagram so you could see what an idea list might look like on different days. Uh, I should probably do that more more often now that I think about it. But um, but yeah, those two things, the James Altucher Show or follow me on Instagram at Altucher. Beautiful. Thanks so much for coming on, James. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You're a really great interviewer. You asked such smart questions. Uh, uh, it was different than other podcasts I've been on. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the show. Hope you really enjoyed our guest today and that you took one thing valuable from our conversation. If you haven't already, I would love it if you could leave a quick rating or review on whichever network you're listening to the show and share this episode with one friend if you found it valuable. And if it's something that a friend, a family member, or just someone that you care about could find a little bit of insight from what you learned today. All right. Ciao.